0: Now turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, beginning today in chapter 11, which we can find on page 869 of our CART Bibles. Luke chapter 11, beginning in verse 1, and I need to make a slight change to our bulletin. You will notice that it uh, has, uh, that I had originally intended uh, to preach through verses 1 through 13, two very closely connected lessons on prayer from our Lord, Uh, And as I studied this week, I realized uh, even though we have just studied the Lord's Prayer in some depth this summer, uh, I could not make it simply one point of a larger sermon, try though as I might. Uh, And so today we're going to begin uh, simply by studying this prayer that Christ has given us. Uh, We're studying today verses 1 through 4, and Lord willing, we'll come back next week and hear a word uh, toward perseverance Uh, and boldness in our prayer and our confidence in the Lord who hears us next week. But today, beginning to read uh, and study together just uh, Luke chapter 11, verses 1 through 4, uh, reading and studying uh, the Lord's Prayer. Now, Before we read this text together, uh, I want to ask that you would uh, go with me in prayer and ask that the Lord would help us as we study this prayer that he's given us. Let's pray together. Oh, gracious Father, we thank you for giving us your word. We thank you that you teach us all that we need for life and godliness, not only by your word, but by the power of your spirit who dwells within us. We pray that we would come by the power of your spirit and through the merits of Jesus Christ, that we would draw near, that we would call upon you, Abba, Father, that you would hear and through this text today, O oh Lord, you would teach us more and more how to pray to you. Give us faithful hearts and glad hearts to turn to you in prayer, knowing that you are the God who hears us in Christ Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. Well, will hear now God's word as we find it. Luke chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, As far, the reading of God's holy and inerrant word, may he add a blessing as we study these words together today. Now, I would uh, wager a guess that most of you in this room have heard that intimidating tale about Martin Luther and his prayer life. Have you heard it? The saying goes, it's often said that Martin Luther, uh, a former monk that he was, would begin every day with two solid hours of secret prayer before he did anything else. The only exception to that rule for Luther uh, is on days that he knew would be especially busy, in which case he would add another hour of prayer, spending three hours of prayer uh, before he began his day. And it's, it's a story like that that makes us mere mortals blush when we consider uh, how small our prayer life is compared to Dr. Luther. It's true, actually, that, that we don't know that Luther ever... Uh, Explained his own prayer life that way, that he described it in quite those words. The, the sources actually for that story begin to get a little fuzzy if you try to trace it beyond about a hundred years ago. But from what we know of, of Luther's life and, and his dedication to prayer, and certainly what we know of what he actually did write, uh, that, that guess probably isn't very far off, probably a few hour quota of prayer every day. You see, prayer was A very important thing to Martin Luther, as it has been to many believers throughout the ages. In in the introduction to Luther's larger catechism, he actually condemns pastors, any pastor who refuses to teach their congregation to pray through the outline of the Lord's Prayer. Not just to repeat it, but to make it a regular part uh, of their daily life and prayer. And this is what he says, Should we despise such might, we deserve not only to be given no food to eat, but also to be driven out into the streets, to have the dogs set upon us, and to be pelted with horse manure. Well, Luther is uh, not exactly given to subtlety, uh, but that's what he said, and that's what he believed so strongly did he believe in the power of regular prayer, regular fervent prayer, that it was a non-negotiable in the Christian life. And throughout the centuries, throughout the ages of the church, that is the same sentiment we hear from basically all of, those we might call our Christian heroes. John Calvin said uh, that prayer is the chief exercise of our faith. Robert Murray McShane said, A man is what he is on his knees before God, that and nothing more. More recently, J.I. Packer uh, wrote that prayer is the spiritual measure of men and women in a way that nothing else is. And folks, we could keep going, and you know we could keep going. We could spend the next 40 minutes doing nothing but reading and rehearsing uh, some memorable inspirational quotes about what it means to be a strong person in prayer. We could sit at the feet of a legion of Christian giants and walk out of this room feeling microscopic by comparison when we think about our prayer life compared to their prayer life. And maybe in our age of distraction and and self-sufficiency, that's what we need to do from time to time. Just consider how small our prayer often is. But I think there's actually a better way. Better than just comparing ourselves to, to other Christians who have gone before us, other intimidating men and women Of prayer, far better is the approach that comes humbly to the feet of our Savior and asks the question of the disciple in this passage Lord, teach us to pray. That's what we need. Over and over again, it doesn't doesn't matter how long you've been a Christian, it doesn't matter if you can pray for an hour at a click without blinking or whether you barely eke out five minutes without your mind wandering. This is the question we need to ask over and over again. It's the request we need to make of the Lord Lord, teach us how to pray. And when we ask that question, Jesus is always willing to answer. That's what we find here. In fact, there is this beautiful continuity. We're getting now into a section of Luke's gospel that many scholars say, you know, this is the portion in the middle that Luke has just begun to gather and uh, and add a bunch of different teachings and stories and accounts that he's heard, but there's no particular order as Jesus makes his way. Actually, there's a wonderful continuity from what we've just seen in the previous passage. If you were with us last week, you know that we, we sat together with Listening Mary and to see her sit at the feet of her Savior and, and learn what it was as Jesus opened up all that she needed to know about her need of Him. And how fitting now that we come in the next passage to, to find uh, that Jesus teaches us how to come to God and ask for what we need in prayer. There's a natural flow. It's an almost, it's a back and a forth, like, like breathing in and breathing out, like a conversation between God and his children. We learn to listen to Jesus, and Jesus teaches us how to speak to the Father. And those who have learned how to listen to God's word now learn to approach him in prayer. And it's perfectly fitting that the Jesus we listen to is the one who teaches us also how to speak. And that is uh, what Jesus is teaching us here as he teaches us to pray. He's teaching us uh, not just to speak, not only to to make up our own prayers or to think of what we think is important, but he's teaching us how to shape our prayers according to the priorities of God. This is our first point today, and really it's, it's going to be our main point, that Jesus is teaching us in this prayer to shape our prayers after the priorities of God. Sometimes there is a tendency in the church to get really caught up on the specific words of the Lord's Prayer. Just the right phrases and in just the right order, and there is a place for that. Actually, one of the things Martin Luther did write is, is that he would begin his daily prayer. Anytime he would pray, he would begin, he said, like a little child learning his lessons all over again. He would repeat, he would recite the exact words of the Lord's Prayer. It was a way of humbling himself before the Lord who gave these words. And We come every week and we pray this prayer together. We pray it together with one another. We pray it together with, with centuries full of saints before us. We pray it with uh, millions of Christians around the world. And the words of this prayer can become a part of a, a liturgy that connects us to the larger universal church. And there's something wonderfully helpful about the words of this prayer. But the point of the Lord's Prayer isn't just to give us something to repeat together not just set phrases that we can mouth when we come together. And actually, you notice that that the Lord's Prayer, as a prayer, is so familiar to us that our first impression, when we open up Luke's Gospel and we read the version here, and the ESV especially, our first impression is that maybe something's missing. You notice that this is a kind of simplified version of, of the prayer we're more familiar with and the one that we pray every week when we come together. That's the one taken, especially from the King James Version, of Matthew's Gospel. And in Matthew, there are a few other things that are a part of the prayer there. It was given in a different context. Jesus was teaching the Sermon on the Mount, and so he expanded a few of the ideas, and he, he gave a little bit more language to fill out what he was teaching. But in Luke, there's, there's a little bit less. It's a simplified version. Matthew's prayer begins, Our Father who is in heaven. But Luke, it becomes simply, Father. Father. Luke's request that God's kingdom would come is joined in Matthew by thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Luke, toward the end, has has no mention of deliverance from evil, but simply asks, Lord, that you would lead us not into temptation. And I suppose if we had time, uh, we could walk through some of those differences between Matthew and Luke, and we could maybe even deal with some of the manuscript issues and and what's the difference between the King James and most of our modern translations now. And we could walk through some of those differences. But one thing we don't need to do as we consider this prayer is that we don't need to wonder if one gospel got the prayer right and the other gospel got the prayer wrong. In fact, that's explicitly not the point of the Lord's Prayer. We shouldn't be so worried about the form of the prayer that we're afraid to leave out one syllable here or a syllable there. And if ever in our praying, we become so focused on repeating the right words in the right order to produce a predictable outcome, we actually are no longer praying. There's a different category for that sort of thing, and it's not called prayer, it's called magic. It's an incantation, it's a spell that we use To manipulate the divine to do what we want its the way that pagans all throughout history have approached spiritual things. That prayer becomes another ritual, something else that we do in just the right way to get just what we want. And that's not prayer and that's not what Jesus has given us not simply a mantra to be repeated. It's helpful when we come and we we unify ourselves with these words. It's helpful for good order in the church. It's helpful to remind ourselves that the Lord teaches us what is important. But the point is not to get so hung up on the pieces and the words. The point is Jesus is showing us the priorities of the God we pray to. So here in Luke, we we find a sort of simplified version of the same prayer that Jesus taught at least on one other occasion. My guess is probably that he taught this to every disciple that that wanted to know how to pray, that it was part of his regular teaching as he went from place to place, uh, his itinerant teaching. We know how it goes. Uh, Parents in in one household will sometimes uh, teach the same household rules to one child in a different way than they will to another. One child might be older. They might understand a little bit more of the nuance. And so the Lord, uh, and so the parent rather, will, will flesh it out. And, and to a younger child, maybe give the simpler version. But it's the same rule, and, and there's not a double standard. That's what we see here. Jesus is giving us a list of God's priorities and the ways that we ought to approach him. And it doesn't matter if we're sitting in an elementary class or, or master's seminar. When Christ teaches his people to pray, he gives us the same outline, in a sense, the same priorities. And So that's our beginning today, that Jesus is teaching us what it means to shape our prayers according to God's priority. And the rest of our time together, we're going to study uh, what those priorities are. And according uh, to Jesus, we could say, if we, we want to get the sort of simplified, simplified version, the most simple we could get, I think we need to say that a disciple's prayer ought to include three things. A disciple's prayer, shaped according to God's priority, well, it ought to be addressed to our Father. That's the first. It ought to be concerned with God's glory. That's number two. And third, our prayers ought to be honest with our needs. This is what it means to pray like Jesus, to pray shaped by God's priorities, that we are addressing our prayers to our Father, that we are concerned in our prayers with God's glory, and finally, that we are honest with our needs. Now, let's begin with that first one, that a disciple's prayer ought to be addressed to our Father. Now, verse 2, where Jesus begins, is perhaps the most radical thing about the way that Jesus taught his disciples to pray, and it's also the thing that makes this prayer distinctly Christian. Jesus began, he said to them, when you pray, say, Father. Now you may be aware that there was no holy man, no prophet, no no man of God anywhere in the Old Testament that was so bold as to call God his personal father. It was often called corporately the, the Father of Israel. When the people in the Old Testament unequivocally prayed to God, they prayed uh, in names or, or titles or other relationships, things that God had done. And so the saints in the Old Testament prayed to God Almighty. That's who he is. He's high, he's separate, he's overall. he's God Almighty. They made their request to the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, maybe a generation or two or many more before. They sought the blessing of the God who sees. They prayed to the Lord who provides. They prayed to God who is enthroned upon the cherubim. Most often they prayed simply to Yahweh, his his personal name we might say. That means the one who is self-existent, the one who exists, the eternal one. But when Jesus came into the world, he came with prayers on his lips addressed to his Father. Not just the Father of mercies, not just the Father of Israel, and not even, we see in Luke, to our Father who art in heaven, which sort of takes away everything that it gives, but he prayed simply to Father. There is a closeness in Jesus' relationship. He prayed on the basis of his personal relationship, and that was the unchanging element in all of Jesus' prayers. In fact, the significance of Jesus praying to the Father can be immediately seen when you consider that there is exactly one prayer in the New Testament where Jesus calls the Father something other than Father. It's the prayer that he prayed while he stood in your place, while he hung, bearing the alienation of sin, and he quoted Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the only place. When Jesus stands in the place of a sinner, only when carrying the weight of our guilt did Jesus cry out with any kind of distance from the Father in his prayers. In every other place, he spoke to his Father. And it scandalized the Jews when Jesus spoke that way. They hated it, because they knew what it meant. It tells us in John's Gospel, the the Pharisees approached him and they said, because calling him your Father, you make him equal. You make yourself equal with him. And it scandalized the Jews when Jesus used that name, but it doesn't surprise us. What did we confess together today from the Nicene Creed? He's the eternal begotten one, the only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father. Jesus prayed to the Father because he had a right to. Jesus prayed to the Father because he is the eternal Son from before the foundations of the world, true God of true God, very light of very light begotten, not made. He is the Son, and so he prays with all the rights of sonship that are inherent to his person. He prays to the Father, and it shouldn't, it shouldn't surprise us that Jesus prays to the Father, but it ought to surprise us that he tells us that we should do the same. Of course, wasn't it Luke uh, in his genealogy of Jesus? It was Luke who, who traced the line of Jesus through Jared, the son of Mahaliel, The son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. And so we want to say almost, isn't there a sense in which uh, because we are his creation, because we are his people, aren't we together with Adam, our first father, also sons and and daughters of God? Aren't we his offspring that he has created in the world? Shouldn't we be able to call ourselves his children through uh, through, through Adam, our first father, rather? except that the theological knee-jerk reaction of the Jews was exactly right. There is a distance between us and the God who made us. Far from having a privilege because we are descended from Adam, we are separated because we are descended from Adam. The one who was made to be the son of God And the sin that came into the world in which we inhabit. There's a great gulf now of righteousness that separates God, the perfect creator, from his sinful creation. And to claim God for our Father actually is more than simply saying that we have been made by him. More than claiming that we are his people. To claim God as our Father is to say that that gulf has been filled in. That that gap has been bridged. That we have been brought close to the one that sin has separated us from. And that's what Scripture teaches us, isn't it? The New Testament resounds with the message that because Christ, the eternal Son, has come to bear our sin, we can call God our Father. Paul, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 18, says, Because of the blood of Christ, we all have access in one spirit to the Father. Have you ever considered why it is that God should listen to your prayers? Is it because you're Presbyterian? <laughs> is it because you're fine, upstanding people with good jobs and, and a decent pedigree? Is it because you're, you're really rather nice and you're put together and you look good on the outside? Is, is that why God should listen to your prayers? Or does God listen to the prayers of his children because of what Christ has done? Through the blood of Christ, he says, we all have access to the Father through one spirit. John says it simply, 1 John 2, verse 1, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Dear Christian, who is it that bridges that gap of separation between you and the God who created you? Who is it, the one who reconciles and and closes that gap and bids you to come and not only call upon God Almighty, the Lord who sees, the one who provides, Yahweh who is, who is that one who draws you near and says, because you're with me, you can call him Father as I call him Father. And here's the moment that we recognize that Jesus is not giving us this prayer for humanity. This is not God the All-Father that the, uh, that the, the, the ancient liberals, uh, from our standpoint, began to teach about several centuries ago in New England. This is not the sort of prayer that's given as a universalistic groping in the darkness, searching for the divine, but we don't know what's out there. This is not in an Acts 17, sort of the God who is not named, the one that we know exists, but we don't quite know. That's not who this prayer is for, those who are sort of groping in the darkness. This prayer comes as a gift of our salvation. This is a privilege purchased for us by Christ Himself. Through Him we have access to the throne of grace. By the Spirit dwelling in us, we are able to cry out, Abba, Father. The scholar puts it this way. He says in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus authorizes his disciples to repeat the word Abba after him. He gives them a share in his sonship. He empowers them to speak with their God as a child would speak with his father. That's what this prayer is. It's an authorization. And Jesus is calling all of his disciples, all who are his by faith, to come near, telling us to make every single prayer that comes out of our mouth an expression of our adoption, part of the blessing for which Christ has died. By faith, we have become children of God. We become heirs together with Christ. And by faith, we cry out as Jesus did, and we address our prayers to our Father. This is hard for some people, and you know. There are some who, who come uh, and, and stand away even from the concept of fatherhood because they have memories that they can't shake. There are people who come close or as close as they can to the very concept of fatherhood, remembering that there was one in the home who, who was a tyrant or or one who neglected, or one who abused. And I realize that it's difficult for many to to even get past this first word of the prayer, to think of God as Father, because the only Father you know didn't treat you the way you would want a Father to treat you. But Jesus is calling you today by faith to realize that God's priority is that you should know Him as the perfect Father, as one who has compassion on His children, as one who loves His children enough that He would give of himself to draw you near. And Jesus calls us today to realize that there is a God who wants us to know him and to trust him and to call him Father. That's the first priority that ought to shape our prayers. It should be addressed to our Father. Secondly, a disciple's prayer ought to be concerned with God's glory. Now, Jesus covers this concern in the first two petitions of this prayer. Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Now don't be distracted uh, by the differing language that shows up in these two petitions. They're really dealing in the same reality. They're dealing in the reality of how humanity experiences who God is and who he always has been. We're talking about uh, the prayer that in time and in space, in the flow of nations, and in history, God would receive more and more glory in the world that he's made. It is a prayer that humanity would understand more of who God is, that we would submit more to what he demands. It's the prayer that we would experience more of who he is, and we know that that's what we're praying here, because on a certain level, the prayers that Jesus is giving to us are things that are already and eternally true of God. The first request is for God's name to be hallowed, sanctified would be another way to translate that. More and more set apart as holy, more and more understood and praised and and thought as altogether lovely, separate from us, high and lifted up, that we would look to him, that he would be the one who is the all-glorious one, separated from humanity, and Jesus says, pray that God's name would be more and more sanctified, Not not that God himself could be more and more holy. Perish the thought, that's an impossibility if you've got your Bibles open at all, all over the place in Scripture. It tells us that God is, is the all holy one, the one to whom we cannot ascend, save for the one who would descend to where we are and bring us to Himself. He is the one altogether set apart. That was the witness of Isaiah in the temple. And he saw a vision of, of a reality that is normally clouded from our eyes because of our sin, because of our slowness and our hardness of heart. Isaiah saw something that is already true. The angels cried out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Was that something that Isaiah was waiting to happen? Is it something that that wasn't true already? Is it something that he was hoping? Well, maybe someday the earth will be full of God's glory. Maybe someday God will become thrice holy. No, it's something that is already true. It is reality as it actually is. And So when we pray for God's name to be hallowed, we are praying that we, in all creation, would understand the reality of God's already holiness. The same goes for the request for God's kingdom to advance, His kingdom to come. It's true, we know that, that in a special sense there is a not yetness to God's kingdom. In Christ the kingdom has come near, in Christ the kingdom has been inaugurated, and yet we still wait for that day when the kingdom will be consummated, when it will be brought in its, in its fullness and in its visible experiential glory. We still wait for that day foretold in Revelation 11, when the kingdom of the world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. But it's also true, isn't it, that God's reign is already. It's already complete. It's already everywhere, and it's already because simply who God is. That was the witness of Nebuchadnezzar. You remember mighty, prideful Nebuchadnezzar who looked upon the glory of Babylon from the top of the city wall and he pridefully boasted in his heart, is this not great Babylon which I have created and in my glory I have raised up? You remember the rest of the story in Daniel chapter 4. How the Lord humbled Nebuchadnezzar, how he drove him away from the society of men, how Nebuchadnezzar's mind and his reason were taken away. He was, he was to act like an animal for a period of seven years until that day when his eyes would turn upward and he would come to the realization of what had been true all along for Babylon and for all the other kingdoms of the world. Daniel chapter 4, verse 34, Nebuchadnezzar says, "'I lifted my eyes to heaven, my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High.'" And I praised and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion. And his kingdom endures from generation to generation. So you see that it's already true. And Jesus is saying, when you pray, begin with the things that God has declared about himself and those things that we struggle to apprehend just now. Begin with the promises that your father has said he is going to fulfill for his namesake. Pray for God's glory to fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. Specifically, pray that God would be known and he would be worshipped more and more. Pray that his kingdom and his kingship would extend in all the corners of the earth that are still consumed with sin and disobedience. And this is a matter of priorities, isn't it? Folks, when we come to pray, we have so many things we can ask God for that we could probably take Paul literally and spend the rest of our lives in nothing but prayer without ceasing for ourselves and for our neighbors. And we still wouldn't cover all the things that we want to pray and the needs that we have around us. But Jesus is teaching us. uh, He's going to teach us how to pray for our needs. But before we turn our prayers to ourselves, Jesus is saying we ought to seek first the kingdom of God. We ought to take time in our prayers to pray for the glory of the Lord. We ought to take time to pray for the work of those missionaries that nobody knows about who are in hidden places and maybe you don't even know about them and you don't know them by name but you know that they're there and the, and the kingdom is growing by leaps and bounds among a people that don't even speak your language and maybe you need to stop and pray for God's kingdom to come for his name to be hallowed. Jesus is calling us to take time in our our busy prayers and all the needs we're consumed with and pray that the gospel would penetrate into our unbelieving neighborhoods. He's calling us to pray that the Lord would reveal himself through the conviction of sin, the establishment of justice in the world. He's calling us to pray together with John, Amen, come Lord Jesus. It's calling us to pray that even if it means that Jesus should come back, all of our earthly plans would be cut short. It's a matter of priorities. And maybe that's the instruction you need for your own prayer life. Maybe the reason prayer often seems so stale is that the majority of the time that we spend on our knees, we spend praying into a mirror. Not that we're not speaking to the Lord, but we spend our time thinking and looking at ourselves and what we need and what can God do for us and how can he help our family and what can he do for those that are close to us and how can we be blessed in order that we can be a blessing and those are all wonderful things to pray and we're about to get there, but maybe the thing that we need to begin with is God's kingdom and his glory and his name. Maybe that's the freshness that we need. There's a challenge here. I think especially if if my hunch is right and these petitions are listed in in order of importance, at least the division of them between God's glory and our needs, I think there's a challenge here that we would see the glory of God's name as more important than our daily bread. There's a challenge here that we would believe that, that the advance of God's kingdom is actually more important than our own forgiveness and the way that we forgive those who trespass against us. This is reestablishing everything that we think we need in prayer but this is the priority that Jesus is giving to his people when you come make sure that your prayers are concerned with the glory of God. There are different moments and different times and sometimes in a moment of distress you can barely get out oh Lord help me. I'm not saying that That when you're sinking in the mire, you have to go through a rote routine of saying, well, first I pray for this, and then for that, and then for this other thing. One commentator I read this week said that if Peter, uh, in, uh, in the ocean, in the sea, after getting out of the boat, began to work through the Lord's Prayer, he would have been blowing bubbles before he ever got to, save me, Lord. There are times when we cry out, but we also need to recognize this priority. That our prayers ought to be concerned with God's glory. It's a call to sit and to wait with our needs while we pray for God's kingdom. And then finally, Jesus does teach us that that in our prayers, as we shape them according to God's priorities, that we ought to be honest with our needs. And here's an encouragement, actually, that these needs, the things that we have for ourselves, for our neighbors, for our loved ones, for our families, these needs are part of God's priorities as well. They're not left out. This isn't a a hyper-spiritual sort of prayer. This is real life. This is where we live and what we need. Peter tells us, 1 Peter 5, 7, Cast all your anxieties upon the Lord because He cares for you. That's what we come to the Lord's Prayer and walk away knowing that God cares for us. That there's a Father in Heaven who draws us near as a little child to sit upon His lap to say, Tell me what you need. Jesus is telling us, Come and And pray that the Lord would take care of his children. It might be striking, though, that after all the talk of God's name and all all the talk of his kingdom, that, that Jesus doesn't suggest what some people expect in the larger half of this prayer. You know, there are always people, and And maybe you're one of them sometimes. There are always people who, who seem to be so wrapped up in spiritual things and they're thinking about spiritual things and they're wrestling with spiritual things and they're engaged in spiritual things and that's a good thing, but they get so wrapped up into spiritual things that they forget the necessities of life. As though the things of this life were a mere distraction to draw us away from the Lord and what's really going on in our hearts. I suppose there are some uh, mystical New Age religions where that would fit the context. But but if we're not careful, that same sort of praying can show up in the mouths of Christians where it ought not to be. I wonder if you've if you've ever found yourself praying for somebody. Well, there's a sickness, there's a there's a disease, there's a physical need. And as you go through that prayer you you pray and, and it's and it's true. It, it, you're not putting on some some front to to just appear more spiritual than you really are, but you have your priorities in order and you you pray for their Christian comfort, for for their Christian witness. You pray for them to know the presence of God in the midst of their distress, and those are all good things. But have you ever prayed that way and gotten to the end of the prayer and said your amen and then said, oh yes, also Lord, would you heal this person? That's not the way that it goes in Jesus' priorities. When Jesus teaches his people to pray, there is no such thing of being so heavenly-minded that we're of no earthly good. This is the beautiful thing about having the Savior who came, who is not only God eternally, but man in the flesh, that he knows what it is to live in a body. He knows what it is, and he knows how much of our lives are wrapped up in feeling tired and sore And hungry and having walked all day and frustrated with the things that don't go well in the world. He knows what it is to be tempted to to grumbling and complaining. And when he begins his supplications in his famous prayer, he starts with the most basic necessities of life. Folks, this ought to be a breath of fresh air for us stuffy Calvinists who sometimes struggle to just get down to business and ask God to do something already. I'm not saying that we ought to make demands in our prayers, that we ought never to leave room for God uh, to establish His will and to walk with Him and to submit to Him. I'm simply saying, is it ever possible that sometimes we pray so much for the big things in life that we forget the small things that God also cares about? We convince ourselves that to be a real spiritual Christian, well, well, we'll leave the rest to him. We'll pray about salvation. We'll pray about temptation. We'll pray about these other things. But Jesus says, pray about your daily bread. Actually, not, not the dessert for next week, but your bread for today. The things that you need. Is it possible that we can sometimes forget that the God of our salvation is also the God of our bank account? He's also the God of our cancer. He's also the God of our cranky children. He's also the God of every need that crops up in our daily lives over and over and over again. And Jesus is saying, you ought to come in your prayers honest with your needs before the Lord. There are some physical needs that that can so cloud your understanding of what God is doing that you need to deal with those first sometimes before you can move on. I've been speaking to several folks dealing with chronic ailments. And they say, sometimes I just... I want to pray, and I can't. No, What what wisdom do we give them? Well, you'd better, you'd better reach down and pull up your spiritual bootstraps, and you better start praying for God's kingdom to come, shouldn't you? Well, maybe eventually they can get there, and maybe you will too. Very often we need to remind ourselves that sometimes all we can do is groan in these bodies the Lord has put us in, Sometimes all we can do is groan as we see the way that this creation has been handed over to futility in hope by the one who consigned it so that it would be revealed later that we are the sons of God and the children of God. Sometimes all we can remind one another is that our needs are God's priorities too and the Spirit intercedes himself for us with groanings too deep for words. And so we can come and we can be honest with the needs that we have. We can... There's an encouragement here. Then part of being honest with our needs is is learning to allow God's word to expose the needs that we wish we didn't have to deal with. It's easy uh, to recognize our physical needs, isn't it? You don't need anybody else to help you with those things. You don't need somebody else to come along and say, you're hungry. You haven't had anything to eat in a while. Your bank account and its balance will keep you awake all by itself. You can feel that bulging disc and nobody else has to say, have you prayed about that lately? But we live in a world and in a culture and in bodies that are constantly trying to get us not to pay attention to the other needs that God's word says we actually have. It's sort of doubly difficult to recognize our needs, because we live uh, in these bodies and we're we're self-deceived about our indwelling unrighteousness. And then we also live in this culture that is actively attempting to remove the shame and the stigma of sin and temptations. That's not an issue. That's not not a problem, actually. Don't, Don't worry about that. Just focus on the things that are the here and now. Focus on that back issue and focus on that person over there and focus on these things that you need in your daily life. And maybe this is what John Calvin meant when he said that Prayer is the chief exercise of our faith. Because in prayer, not only do we have to believe that there is a God who hears us and cares for us, but we have to believe that the things God says we need are actually the things that we need. We don't get diverted into things that are lesser, into into being drawn astray to say, well, I'm so consumed with this that I can't even think about that. And so Jesus tells us to come and ask for forgiveness. He tells us to be honest with that need. He tells us to come with hearts that are so concerned with spiritual wholeness that we're willing to offer to others what we would seek from the Lord. Not that that our forgiveness of others is a way to merit God's forgiveness for us. It's not a quid pro quo sort of thing. Forgiveness is always by God's grace, and, and mercy is always apart from merit, and yet Jesus is telling us to come to the Father so shaped by his diagnosis of our spiritual condition, that we begin to recognize the need for reconciliation everywhere around us. And so we pray, O Lord, forgive us our sins, as we also forgive those who are indebted to us. That's part of what it means to be honest about our need in prayer. It means coming with a willingness to be confronted by the Lord for our sins and temptations. It's a willingness to actually be specific enough to stop speaking of our sin in categorical terms. Oh, Lord, forgive me for my sins. But to be honest enough to say, oh, Lord, please forgive me for my gluttony. Oh, Lord, please forgive me for my intemperate language. Oh, Lord, please forgive me for my anger in this situation and in that situation and with that person. Oh Lord, please forgive me for these lustful thoughts. Please forgive me for that gossiping tongue. That's what it means to be honest, that we would take this almost as a sort of a a jazz tune that we can riff on and we can think about our entire life and the needs that we have and we can plumb the depths of God's word as we listen to him and come to him and say, Oh Lord, this is what I need. See, honesty with our sins doesn't mean that we stand and say, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Honesty in our prayers means that we say, here I am, the chief of sinners. That we know without a shadow of a doubt that unless the Lord would restrain our hearts, we would lead ourselves headlong into the kind of terrible and reckless sins that leave a wake of destruction everywhere we go. So J.C. Ryle speaks of this final petition, lead us not into temptation. He says, this petition leaves man precisely in the position he ought to occupy it puts in our mouths the language of humility. Because the most dangerous state in which we can be is not to know and feel our spiritual danger. And so we ask the Lord to guide us. Sinners though we are. Wandering hearts though we have. We ask him to meet us in our ongoing need, to be kept from temptation that is more than we can bear. And when you come to the Lord with honesty in your prayers, what do you find? Rather, who do you find? Well, if you are redeemed by the Lord, if you are a child of God, you find the one who is father. You find the one who has compassion on his children because you have been reconciled to him. You find the one who is holy. You find the one whose dominion is forever and ever. You find the one who rules the hearts the kingdoms of men. You find the God who in Christ enables you to come and call him Father. And ask again, though you turn away so very often, not because you've lost your salvation, but because of that relationship issue. And Jesus told his disciples in the upper room that those who have been washed need, need not to have a bath all over again, but There is some sort of daily maintenance, a washing of the feet, a restoration of the relationship, a drawing near to the Lord. That's what we do when we come to the Lord in honesty. And when we come honest with our needs, we find that he's our Father who cares for us. He's our Father who welcomes us. And no matter how long we've been his child, he invites us to come and to learn how to pray and to learn how to shape our prayers after his priorities. Pray that you would do that today. Pray that as we go from this place, you wouldn't be content simply to read these words anymore. They'd become your prayer, like a little child reciting them again to the Father, the Lord who gave them. My prayer is that you would come to the Lord yourself, even today, and say, Lord, teach us to pray. Would you join me as we go to Him together? Oh, gracious Lord and Father, we thank you. And in Christ Jesus, we have been reconciled. Through the blood of his cross, we have access to you. Because of the gospel, we are made your children. Thank you that for all those who received him, you gave the right to be called children of God. And so we cry out, Abba, Father. Fill us and meet us and meet our every need in Christ and help us always to look and to pray and to long for the honoring of your name and the coming of your kingdom. Even so, amen. Come, Lord Jesus, we pray in his name. Amen.